all public health officials need to do, first of all, they have to understand that illicit drug use has been with us since humans have engaged and, well, since humans have walked Earth, and it's not going anywhere. Dr. Carl Hart is the chair of psychology at Columbia University. Over the course of my reporting for this series, I spoke with Carl about a number of issues related to drug use and the opioid overdose epidemic in this country, including the question of whether addiction is a brain disease. At one point, Carl brought up an idea that's still pretty new in the addiction response, something that's very new in the U.S. If we start there and we say we want to keep people safe, all you have to do is set up free drug purity testing sites uh, where people can uh, take a sample of whatever they have to some location and get anonymous tests done. Uh, and if it has fentanyl, people are aware and they know to scale back, don't use as much. Uh, they do this sort of thing in Spain. They do this thing around the globe. But in the United States, morality has shaped the way we deal with these issues. Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. I care for patients in places where I think there's a great need, in this country and overseas. This means different things in different communities. And in this season of In Sickness and in Health, we're asking how we can save lives, the lives of opioid users, and how we can help communities affected by addiction and the drug trade. There's a test strip, kind of like a drugstore pregnancy test, that doctors can use to test a patient's urine for fentanyl, the powerful drug that's now infiltrating the opioid market and causing a big spike in overdose deaths. Fentanyl is hard to detect once it's in the system. Regular urine tox screens won't pick it up, but these special strips will. These same strips can be used to do something simple but revolutionary, test a drug for adulterants like fentanyl before they harm or kill. You know, there's still, even to this day, there still are more accidents, uh, deaths caused by accidents than there are opioids. Carl Hart has a serious problem when it comes to the way we talk about opioid use, how the media covers it. He thinks exaggeration and sensationalism create misperceptions and ultimately lead to more deaths. When you, when you actually look at the numbers, I know people, uh, newspaper articles said, oh, overdose related to drugs have surpassed automobile accidents. When they do that, they include everything, not only the opioids, every drug in, that you can think of. And it's, uh, but then they talk about opioids in the article. So they are playing these tricks with words, and it's not keeping the public safe. Carl Hart thinks that inaccurate framing of the opioid problem is one of the biggest barriers to keeping drug users alive and curbing the rate of opioid overdoses. Too often in people's minds, he says, drug overdose has become synonymous with opioid overdose. But many drug overdoses are the result of drugs used in combination, say opioids and benzodiazepines like Valium or Xanax, or from the use of fentanyl. Fentanyl in particular is responsible for a recent spike in opioid overdose deaths in the United States.
It's important to understand that some celebrities who've died from opioid overdoses, like Prince or Michael Jackson, aren't representative of the average death from drug overdoses in this country. They were prescribed pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl by their doctors. They knew what they were taking. As for Philip Seymour Hoffman, he overdosed on heroin in 2014, before fentanyl had fully penetrated the heroin supply. What we're talking about here are people who are using street drugs today, who can't be sure what combination of drugs they're taking and if they might be tainted with fentanyl. So my point is, is that each year in the country there are 30,000 deaths caused by automobile accidents, 30,000 or more. Rather than talking about an epidemic related to automobile deaths, what we do instead is that we make sure people wear seatbelts, we make sure that people are attending to their speed, we're making sure that they're not drinking and driving, all the things that we know are um, uh, related to these deaths. We don't do the same thing with the opioids, and the public media and the public have been irresponsible, and they have contributed to these deaths. Carl sees a rational response to opioid addiction and overdose as a harm reduction response. Motor vehicle accidents kill. It's a leading cause of death in the U.S. But we allow people to drive and work to remove factors that increase the risk of accident and death. Carl thinks we should take a similar approach to drug use. This might sound radical, but it has a certain logic to it. People are going to take drugs. So why not make it safer for those who do? Why not offer testing so people know what they're taking? The most important thing to do is anonymous, free drug purity testings. That's the most important thing to do. Adulterant testing is something that can be done in the United States by scientists in the lab, but anonymous purity testing for users? That's not something that's being done in any widespread way in this country. But Carl's insistence is based on real evidence, on what has been shown to save lives, on data from Europe, where deaths are prevented every day by way of government-supported drug testing. Okay, the Drugs Information Monitoring System, or shortly uh, DIMS, as we call it, uh, is system set up already in the 90s of last century, um, which is testing, analyzing drug samples uh, that we eat that are being submitted by drug users themselves. So it's not seizures or anything else. It's just the drugs that drug users deliver at our services uh, in order to have it tested. Don van der Hauer works for the Trimbos Institute in the Netherlands, an institution that deals with issues of drug addiction and mental health. The Drug Information Monitoring System, or DIMS, is a government-supported program that tests party drugs and heroin for adulterants that could cause overdose and death in unsuspecting users. At offices, where they can hand in drugs, they say, well, I've bought cocaine, or I've bought speed, or I've bought what, ecstasy. Definitely, I, will try to, I want to use it, but I'm firstly, I would like to know what it actually contains. And so we do a various set of, uh, of analysis, simple tests, but also chemical analysis if it's needed. A drug user drops a sample of their supply off at one of these offices. And, Dan says, then they wait. So a week later, they, have, they can call a specific number. And then they say, well, last week I was at the service. I, I delivered uh, ketamine. 
and now I would like to know the the outcome. And so the outcome would be, well, this sample contains this and this percentage of ketamine, or worse, uh, the sample that you have bought or delivered doesn't contain ketamine, but it contains something which is even more risky and uh, maybe even lethal. So we advise you strongly not to take it, but we also would like to know where it was bought so we can set up a complete warning for this specific sample. These users get their drugs tested for free, but in so doing, help create a surveillance system, providing the Trimbos Institute with information about what's out there on the drug market. This helps not just the individual user, but if an adulterant is potentially lethal, the Institute can issue a national media warning. Take, for example, the case of a bad batch of MDMA. For instance, so we will go on national news programs anywhere possible to warn uh, about the risks of this specific tablet. We also send, uh, do leaflets. We, did, we prepare leaflets and brochures and uh, we distribute them to festivals and all kinds of places where possible users of ecstasy might go. Dan calls us a win-win. The user and potential future users get safety information to prevent overdose from lethal substances. And the Trimbos Institute gets information about what's in circulation, how much drugs are being sold for, and where. So this is what we do. And also we share our, our data with, uh, within the European Union, with the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction. So in case we have uh, very risky, risky substances on the market, we will inform them and they will inform all the focal points in the EU. So in order to prevent uh, people dying from this, uh, this substance. But keeping individuals safe through this program extends beyond the sharing of information in the name of prevention. Trimbos doesn't share all its data with law enforcement, but they do work with law enforcement to locate the source of new or deadly drugs on the market. So the Institute helps prevent the creation and sale of dangerous drugs, but at the same time has made a deal with public prosecutors to ensure that anyone who walks into a testing office with drugs in their pocket will not be arrested protecting individual users while simultaneously collaborating with law enforcement to protect the public at large may sound bizarre by U.S. standards, but it's worked well for the Netherlands. For one thing, widespread heroin use is just not the problem there that it is here in the U.S. Dan can't say for sure why that is, save for perhaps a different mindset about drug use in Europe. But we have this, you know, in Europe, and especially in the Netherlands, we have this idea of freedom of uh, that you should be able to have the full right of your own body and what you you, and what you take and so on and so on and what you do unless you harm other people so we have this uh, this kind of idea and drug use is basically part of that whatever you do at home it's your business whether you drink wine all night uh, or something else uh, it's up to you but you should be able to function the next day so this is the bottom line that uh, forbidding Everything is not the solution. This different mindset has led to different ways of dealing with drug abuse, decriminalization, adulterant testing, and the like. Approaches that many Americans might think are crazy, that are widely criticized by abstinence-focused groups in the U.S. Um, We are among the countries with the lowest drug-related deaths in in Europe. Uh, Over the years, we have had a number of around uh, 120, 130 and drug-related deaths per year. 
If the ultimate goal of politicians, law enforcement, doctors, and others is to prevent deaths from drug use, then why are the American and Dutch responses to drug use so different? Especially when you consider the U.S. has almost 10 times as many drug-related deaths relative to the size of its population as the Netherlands. It isn't that the U.S. is without creative thinkers and problem solvers, but just because a policy might save lives doesn't mean it'll be implemented. Politics, funding, red tape, regulations and restrictions can all get in the way. And that's why some are taking matters into their own hands. I can safely go into a, a shooting gallery or open air market um, or anywhere where, where people are using and, and test and not worry about jeopardizing an agency. This is Tino Fuentes. Tino was born and raised in New York City. He's been in the field of harm reduction for 15 years. He's also a former heroin dealer and user. Tino recently stepped down from his job as director of syringe access and naloxone programs at St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction in the Bronx. Working at St. Anne's, Tino and his team were well aware of drug testing. Tino went so far as to order some test strips, buy bags of heroin from different dealers, and test them himself. Knowing how much of the heroin supply in New York City contains fentanyl, St. Anne's didn't need to be convinced that drug testing was a good idea. But when budgets are tight, a dollar or more per strip adds up quickly. Tino's now a freelance harm reduction consultant. He goes into existing agencies and provides advice about needle exchanges, naloxone, adulterant testing. And then he takes to the streets, seeking out drug users, and offers to test their drugs for fentanyl. So, so the test strips originally, they're, they're urine test strips, and that's for um, a physician like, you know, somebody, if, if a doctor prescribes somebody fentanyl, um, and I guess you want to check and make sure they're taking a fentanyl, you do the urine, the urine test. I use them for, for testing the drugs, right? And again, like I said before, I don't actually test the drugs that they're gonna put in their body. I wait till they draw everything out and add water to the cooker, which could be the spoon or, or the, the bottle cap. Because uh, the strips work off of the water soaks it up or the urine it soaks up, and then it activates the you know, positive or negative. Um, they're really sensitive, so instead of actually testing the drugs like I was saying before, I can just test the residue. The same thing, you know, like, draw out, take out all your drugs, add some water, and test it. They don't, so this is the problem, um, but like I mentioned before, so the problem, they don't tell you the purity, um, and they don't tell you what analog it might be, or like I know they test like for carfentanil, fentanyl, and several other analogs, but it won't tell you. So so when you when you actually use a strip, it'll give you either one, one or two lines or no lines, right? So one line will be positive, two lines will be negative, just one line at the bottom will be like a, a invalid test, or no lines will be an invalid test. But that's the limit that you have. Though these test strips aren't perfect diviners of a drug's contents, merely getting a drug user to try a test strip, Tino says, breaks down barriers and helps start a conversation. And I still have people to this day that say the same thing. You know, I've been dealing with the same person for two years, you know, they wouldn't do that to me, etc. So it's one of those things where I have to see it to believe it, and I still tell people the same thing. I'll give you $10 if it's negative. If it's positive, we'll sit down and have a conversation. Still haven't paid the $10. And we sit down and we have a conversation, you know. 
test it is positive, you know, how to use it safely, if you're going to use it, are you willing to throw it away? And most people are not, you know. Um, you know, using with somebody, having a lock zone. Um, don't use the same cooker, syringes, and everything, of course. Have somebody use first, wait a couple of minutes. If they're good, then you use. So these are the conversations that we're able to have that kind of like slow down over the years, right? Kind of like a little bit like complacency, right? It's, it's happening now, so it's fine. You come in, get your things, but you're not having that actual conversation. And we're at a point right now where we need that conversation. People are dying. Tino's mission is not to get someone to stop using drugs. His work is, first and foremost, about preventing harm to a user, about breaking patterns of behavior that are especially unsafe, patterns that can lead to overdose and death. If someone's drugs test positive for fentanyl, Tino doesn't expect them to throw them away, but he hopes this information will help them use more safely. I, I don't expect, you know, I don't expect people to throw them out. And, and, and one of the reasons is because, you know, for the most part, especially if you're in the street, you know, whatever you had to do, whatever hustle you had to do to get that money, that's all you have. And if, especially if you're dope sick, you're not going to throw it out. Um, and I've had still the same three people, right, two of them. They had the money, they can afford to throw it out, buy it from somebody else. And one, which is the key one, um, overdosed the day before, several doses of naloxone, rescue breathing. Um, got picked up by EMT on the way to the hospital. They had to give him another dose of naloxone. Um, after everything happened, I, I had his cooker, right? So after everything happened, I tested his cooker. And that's one of the ones where the results that came back were, came back really quick, really dark, um, positive for fentanyl. Um, he was released. You know, being in New York, you know, you're breathing, you're good, whatever, he was released. Uh, the next day he calls me up, he bought three bags, three separate people. He asked me if I could come down to test him. I came down, all three of them were positive. He threw the bags away and asked me to get him into a detox. Um, that's rare, very rare, because during this whole time, it's still the same three people. I haven't had it happen again. Um, but I'm not expecting anybody to throw it away. Instead of throwing the whole bag out, an unrealistic expectation, especially among users who don't have a lot of cash to spare and don't want to go into withdrawal, users can know that their supply contains a highly deadly substance and try a smaller dose of it when they inject. And even if their batch tests negative, Tino says, he encourages users to try a test shot anyway. Inject, wait five minutes. If the batch contains fentanyl, a user is going to feel it. Once Tino gets his foot in the door, introducing the idea of testing a supply before using, he takes the opportunity to suggest other ways to use more safely. Don't just test your drugs, Tino says, but make sure you have someone to use with and make sure you have naloxone on hand. Make sure you know how to practice rescue breathing. Take turns injecting. Tino says if users inject in pairs, a buddy system of sorts, then one can watch the other and wait to see if an overdose begins. With fentanyl, Tino says, overdoses typically present within a few minutes. So if someone is watching that drug user, they'll be able to administer naloxone and call an EMT before they've injected a deadly dose of the drug into themselves. So, so what we're looking for is a change in drug use, right? A change in pattern. Um, so in, instead of injecting a whole bag, you know, you do a small shot, you do a test shot, right? Um, have someone with you. Like, I suggest all the time for nobody to use alone. And some people still, you know, for whatever reasons they do, and it's, it's you know, 
um, it's really dangerous. But I tell people, you know, have somebody, and a lot of times people have buddies that they get high with together. Have somebody um, um, use with you, have the person use first. Um, wait a couple of minutes. With fentanyl, within a few minutes, you're going to know if the person starts to overdose, at least you're there. You could administer Narcan, call EMT, um, start the whole reviving process. If they don't, then you can go ahead and, and use yours. Um, and even though people are different, right? So what might not, what might not um, put you into an overdose might put me. So you were fine, so I did mine. But the thing is that you're still capable of, if I overdose though, to save me. We're, we're trying to change um, um, drug use patterns. People use, people are going to continue to use. What, what it will do is it, it will be able to at least keep someone alive. When Tino talks about changing patterns, he means patterns of use. If he can teach users a safer way to inject, even when they don't have test strips on hand, they can proceed as though their supply might have fentanyl in it and begin with a small test dose. If he can teach users to always inject their drugs with a partner, then he'll be spreading best practices throughout a community, encouraging information sharing. For Tino, these test strips open a door to thinking differently about a drug and the way it's used. Tino isn't telling them to stop use just because the drug has become more dangerous, advice that would likely fall on deaf ears. Instead, he's suggesting a series of steps that acknowledge some users will keep using, but potentially prevent overdose. Everybody's life has value, right? Um, nobody should die because they use drugs. That's what I use strips for. That's my tool. You know, that's my way of helping. You know, of contributing or whatever word you want to use. And, and I'm continuing to do it um, until I can't no more, and I don't see that happening. I mean, you know, it can happen, right? Anything can happen. But I'm gonna continue and and continue to push other people to do it. Yeah, my my commitment to this is really strong. If you'd like to learn more about fentanyl test strips, you can find information on planned studies in the U.S. and the sale of these fentanyl test strips at dancesafe.org. That's D-A-N-C-E-S-A-F-E dot org. Please be aware that these test strips are not perfect or foolproof. In December, the Canadian government warned its citizens that the test strips could create a false sense of security. In a preliminary study, Health Canada's Drug Analysis Service found that the strips don't always pick up fentanyl or fentanyl analogs, so users should continue to take other precautions to prevent overdose and death. If you use drugs or know someone who does, one of the most important things you can do to prevent an overdose is to carry naloxone, also known as Narcan or FCO. You can get naloxone from your local pharmacist without a prescription, or go to getnaloxonenow.org. That's G-E-T-N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E-N-O-W dot O-R-G. Or contact your local health department, drug treatment, or syringe exchange program. Be aware that if someone has taken fentanyl, they may need multiple doses of naloxone, as well as rescue breaths or mouth-to-mouth. If you or a loved one needs help, you can reach out anonymously and confidentially to SAMHSA's National Helpline at 800-662-HELP. 
That's 800-662-4357. SAMHSA stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. You can also find information online at findtreatment.samhsa.gov. That's findtreatment.samhsa.gov. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Hannah McCarthy and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.